like the toilet paper demand we had last year. Suddenly, everybody expected to be sitting in the bathroom for a very long period of time. So they all rushed to go get as much toilet paper as they possibly could. Now, I'm being a little facetious there. I I think nobody thought that they were going to be sitting in the bathroom for long periods of time. They just wanted to make sure that when they were sitting in the bathroom, they had the toilet paper. Once more unto the breach, dear friend. Else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach, starring Jake and Jeff McClure. We are here to talk to you about finance, the economy, macro and micro. We're here to talk to you about important things like how the hair fell out of our head. No. And and how did we learn how to speak our names? Yes, we can say our names quite well, actually. For economists, that's a big deal. And we are hopefully going to present it in a pretty educational format so that we're not too boring. I'm Jake McClure. And, yeah, this is go- Jeff McClure. I'm uh, here. He's here. I know. No, I'm here. You're there. No, no, I'm here. You're, you're there. Mm. We could debate that. Uh, we are dislocated at the moment, uh, which means that not only us, but every body part, our shoulders included, are dislocated because... We can't determine where here is. It's a very argumentative thing. But we are the personal wealth coach. We're going to jump in. We're going to talk to you about a bunch of stuff today. That's a technical term, by the way, just in case. Don't, stuff. Yeah, stuff. Yeah, stuff. Stuff. It's an economics term that's only used rarely. Well, not really, very rarely. It's used commonly. It's commonly rarely used. Right. Right. Or rarely commonly used. Exactly. So you can tell we're economists because even the sentences that seem to make sense don't. Uh, we are here to educate you, hopefully, or at least to present educational material. Uh, the Personal Wealth Coach is not just this the name of this radio program. It's also the name of an SEC-registered investment advisory firm giving fiduciary advice to clients for a long time. I guess since 2007 as a fiduciary. And what does that mean? Well, fiduciary means offering advice in the best interest or the sole interest of the client, being a steward. Uh, And investment advice falls under some specific rules, but we're not doing those while we're on the air. So the us on the air has to be different than the us off the air. On the air, we can't give fiduciary investment advice because you're not somebody, I'm pretty sure we don't know everybody that's listening. Well, that might be, that might be a little bit optimistic. Maybe we know all of you and have had dinner with you and so on, but even if we were to give you specific advice on the air, we'd be violating all kinds of privacy issues. And just because we're registered with the SEC at the firm level, does not mean that somehow the SEC has given their seal of approval to what we say or do. In fact, they don't do that. They would be very happy to explain that in detail to anyone who claims that they have a seal of approval because the SEC is there to regulate. It's like saying, my bank has been authorized by the police. Um, no. <laughs> doesn't Your bank can't be author- no, no, wait, wait. authorized by the police. 
I get emails saying that my bank has been authorized by the police to give you $6 million. Oh, yeah, yeah. Most of it's coming from Nigeria. So Somewhere. They have yeah. a different method of authorization there. So just, just be aware of that. So I've done a disclosure by not even saying it was a disclosure. You see that I did two of them and that snuck them good. in there. That was really good. So now you get to do the deem. The information we present, which is educational information and not investment advice on this radio program, has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable. And we work really hard at deeming them to be reliable, make sure they are reliable. Get your deem on, but, but not your demon. Right. Yeah. And uh, But we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. In other words, we get our information from things like the Associated Press, Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, the Economist. Uh, Bloomberg, Bloomberg, The Economist, uh, and a lot of other places. Moody's. Moody's is pretty rig. Yeah, Morningstar. correct. Morningstar. But we make no warranty or guarantee means they could, make, they could be mistaken. So we don't make any promises. All right. We do our best to double check on everything that we're getting, though. Get it from multiple sources. That still doesn't make it correct. But at least it's slightly more reliable than other sources. We've been doing it for how many years now? You've been doing it since 1997. I've been doing it from 98. So I think collectively that's about 3,000 years. About a quarter of a century we've been doing this radio program. And we've never paid for it and they've never paid us. We do advertise on KTEM, uh, mainly advertise for the radio program. but And they advertise for the radio program too, so I don't know how that works out, but we're supposed to disclose that. Yes. I think it's a good idea. I think if you're listening to the radio right now, it's a pretty good statement to say if you're hearing some financial person talk on the radio, most often they are paying to be on there. They're paying someone so that you can hear their voice. And I think that's an important thing to know because infomercials are not the same as education. Isn't that amazing? Although you can be educated by an infomercial. I, I have... I have been educated by infomercials. I have some knives in my kitchen that I am, uh, I, I still have to sharpen them even though they said I'd never have to. I don't know what that's about. But I, I, they're good knives as long as you sharpen them. Okay. So we've hit all of our disclosures, our disclaimers. So let's leap into the market. What happened this week? Well, the S&P 500 finished out the week at 4173.85, down a whopping 1.39%, which is not much. It dipped down to 4153 on Wednesday on fears of inflation uh, because the consumer price index jumped up 4.2% since this time last year. And we've been warning you, both in our newsletter and in on the radio, that one-year comparisons stink. They're not, they're not good right now because last year at this time, the economy was in a distinct slump. Uh, you you want to call it a slump? I think it's more like a collapse. Uh, well, the inflation went to effect, effectively zero. Prices were dropping last year instead of rising. So if you compare this year's numbers with last year's numbers one year out, whether it's in the market or anything else, you get some very unrealistic numbers. So we try to avoid doing that. But the way the Commerce Department, I'm, I'm sorry, the Labor Department presents consumer price indexes in one-year increments. So they were saying, whoa, 4.2% inflation in one year. It's terrible. We can talk about that some more. It really wasn't 4.2%, but we'll talk about that. Anyway, by Friday, the traders concluded that the world was not coming to an end. 
and uh, that uh, 12 month trailing comparisons are really bad things to compare with and the market went up. Yeah. So it finally wound up down a whopping 1.39%, which is not much for the week. Yeah. For the week. Now remember that it's now 1.39% from an all time high last Friday. So it's not down very much. It's still within 1.39% of an all time high. So despite all the negative headlines that I saw. And we're just going to throw this in here. We'll talk about it more later in the, in the program. We are ecstatic about the negative headlines. Quite happy. We'll, oh, yeah. we'll, we'll talk about that more later, but hold that as a bookmark in your mind for the radio program. You're bookmarking a radio program, which makes absolutely no sense, and welcome to our program. Which they could be listening to online and the internet and it has nothing to do with radio. Right. Anyway, the uh, S&P 500 is up 11.12% year to date. We're not halfway through the year yet. That's a good sign. We track another index, which is the mid-cap value index. The S&P 500 is focused in large-cap growth right now. Down in the smaller area, mid-cap, mid-sized stocks, mid-sized capitalization companies. The CRSP, U.S. mid-cap value index, is the one we tracked. And it only slipped 8.83% instead of 1.39%. And it remains up twenty, almost 21% this year. And this is an indication of something that I've just begun to see some news reports about, but it's been going on all year. From larger cap growth stocks to smaller value-oriented shares, it remains underway. The smaller stocks and the value-oriented stocks have outperformed the growth stocks so far this year, and they continue to do so. We, like I said, the, uh, the CRSP mid-cap value index is up 20.88% this year. That's pretty good. Yeah. For, for less than half the year, that is uh, kind of a stellar performance. Yeah, I don't expect it will continue this way all year. It's making up for lost ground, but it'd be kind of nice to see. It has done that kind of thing before, but we'll see. There's an important thing to remember about the stock market at this point, and that is when if you're following the market, and we do follow it probably a little more closely than most people do, you saw the headlines in the Wall Street Journal and other places during the week about how inflation was coming and there's danger and the market was going down and there's lots of worries and lots of concerns and there's still lots of worries and lots of concerns and inflation seems to be a big big fear out there. That's really good. Um, bull markets climb a wall of worry. It's an old euphemism yeah, it in comes, the market. It comes from Sir John Templeton and he says, bull markets climb a wall of worry. If we don't have worry, then we're, we're almost done with the bull. There's a couple of things that we can talk about some more during the rest of the program, but it's important to note that, yeah, we did have a little tiny dip and there was some fear of that we were going to have a correction. The NASDAQ plunged down nearly to correction level before it recovered, but it's pretty, pretty volatile to say the least. But the time to be concerned is when the economic indicators turn sour, but the market keeps on soaring and it like it did in 2000. Yeah. When the economy starts south, but the market continues north, it's an indication that things are going bad. We don't see any of that. Matter of fact, we're seeing it the other way around. The yield on the 10-year U.S. Treasury note, which is an important indicator, jumped up to 1.7% on the CPI report when people were afraid and slipped back to 1.63, about where it was two weeks ago. Um, once the inflation fears died off, West Texas Intermediate crude oil seesawed around because of the Colonial Pipeline shutdown, but finally wound up with a 1% rise to 65.47. Again, a very comfortable place. It's important to recognize, by the way, 
If you want to look at one-year comparisons, the price of fuel, the price of gasoline is up 50% since this time last year. And that's, uh, that's, a big in, that's a big influence on the inflation numbers. But it's back pretty much to where it was in 2019. In other words, things are recovering to normal, and somehow that's got some people scared here and there. Yeah. Other than that, that's the market. Good stuff. All right. Well, we said we were going to talk about the inflation stuff. That's, that was big news. And we wanted to talk to you about uh, how that fit in. It, it, why is it a good thing that people are afraid of inflation right now? Or that the market reacted so strongly to a CPI report that showed four plus percent? And why is it that that shouldn't be a worry, except that we're happy that people were, are worried? How's that for another bit of oxymoronic thinking of, uh, of economists? Well, when you say it shouldn't be a worry, I, I know that there's an argument that says a 4.2% jump, and, and prices have gone up. There's no question about it. They're returning to normal. In some cases, they're going above normal. But if you take a look at the consumer price index number, and there's actually a number that it that it's given each each month when the Labor Department produces a consumer price index, and you look at it for two years ago, and you look at where it is today, it's actually risen 2.23% per year for the last two years. That's that's almost precisely what the Federal Reserve has been targeting is its inflation. Ideal inflation is just above 2%, and that's what we're seeing. Uh, in other words, everything is happening according to plan. Everything is normal. But it's, but in a slow news week, and we had a slow news week, it's really good. Scary headlines. It's really good for the newspapers. It's really good for the uh, TV shows, news news shows to scare you because if you scared you pay more attention to them and if you pay more attention to them they get more money for advertising right and that's really all that's going on at this point but that's a good thing and jay can tell you why it's a good thing that the people that were scared yeah so so when there's a lot of people that are afraid uh, in the market this is like the reverse psychology of the market if everybody is telling you the market's going to go down if you have a friend let's, let's get out of the everybody conversation and go to a one person conversation a friend of yours comes to you and says get out of the market you need to get out right away it's about to tank for whatever reason they have some reason simple question is your friend already out of the market when they're telling you this well it's pretty easy to assume that yes, they are already out of the market and they're telling you to get out as well. The same is true across the board when you hear the everybody saying it. If everybody is saying, or a lot of people are saying, get out of the market, something bad is happening. They are likely already out of the market when they're telling it to you. Now that's the reverse psychology. And if everybody is saying, get into the market, then everybody is already in the market. If they're saying, you need to get in the market, you're not experiencing the kind of growth that you could be, well, they're probably already invested. So if you think, if everybody's already in the market, who's left to buy? Who's left to come into the market and continue to purchase it up? Or if everybody's saying the market's about to collapse, who's left to sell? So you can use those as contrarian indicators. Isn't that a nice fancy word a contrarian indicator is one that the surface of it is the opposite of the result so when everybody is saying get into the market you're gonna hear us saying yeah we're nervous and when everybody's saying get out of the market you're gonna hear us say yeah it's probably down near the bottom of where it's going to be 
and we should start moving into the market. So having having kind of laid that out, you having laid out that the inflation fear that people were so worried about, I mean, and it was a pretty big worry. That's a big number, four plus percent inflation year over year. That's not there if you pull out food and energy. It's not there if you look at it over a multi-year uh, average, but it's a big number. But it was just comparing from a point in time that's not a really good starting point. May of or April of last year, anything you measure from there looks bigger than normal because nothing, I mean, we didn't come to a full complete stop, but enough of our economy stopped that prices dropped. And if you're measuring from a low point in prices to today, it looks like we have a really big rise in, in either the stock market or inflation. There's another big factor in that inflation number, and that is in the last month, the average price of a used car jumped 10%. Yeah, that's a big one. And that's a third of the total CPI jump in the last month. In other words, it, it jumped so much, and, it, and cars are so expensive that they have an unusual weight on the consumer price index. People buy cars every three, four years. They don't buy houses every three or four years, so it's a big piece of the consumer price index. And the price of used cars jumped so much for a very simple reason. They're well for reasons that are one-time shot deals, a combination of the ice storm shutting down chip factories in Texas and fires shutting down chip factories in Taiwan. And the fact that the economy has switched around from games to cars and there's not enough chips to run the car manufacturing line. So if you decide you want a car, a specific car, and you really find the car you really like, and you'd like to go buy a new car and you go to the car lot, you probably are going to have, if it's a popular brand of car and a popular model, you're probably going to discover that you've got to order it. You can't test drive it because they don't have any. And you got to order it and wait several months, maybe till next year before you can get it, at which point you go buy a used car, which has caused the price of used cars to jump dramatically. Yeah, so this is the old adage, inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. We have too much money and too few goods at the moment. So now the question is, how long will this last? Is this a long-term trend? And, and to come at this from that direction, we have some crazy supply chain snarls. Uh, they are messed up in lots and lots and lots of different places. There's shipping containers that are in the wrong places in the world, empty shipping containers in places that have nothing to ship, uh, full shipping containers uh, waiting off of ports to come into port with not enough dock space for the ships to come in and, and unload. Uh, and that's just shipping. When you're talking about the chips supply, or you know, this is a great one, toilet paper. When you have a change in demand that is not gradual, that's sudden, like the toilet paper demand we had last year, suddenly everybody expected to be sitting in the bathroom for a very long period of time. So they all rushed to go get as much toilet paper as they possibly could. Now, I'm being a little facetious there. I, I think nobody thought that they were going to be sitting in the bathroom for long periods of time. They just wanted to make sure that when they were sitting in the bathroom, they had the toilet paper. Actually, since many of them weren't going to go to work and their kids are going to be staying home during the day, they were going to use their personal bathroom more often and they realized they didn't have enough toilet paper for that, which yeah. started to run. I've been using company toilet paper for years. That's what they're saying, I guess. So 
Working from home also, I guess, means sitting in the on the toilet at home more than expected. That's not really where the demand came from. It was a panic buy. So they bought all the toilet paper. Was there ever actually a shortage of toilet paper? We, it's not like we suddenly started using the commode more than we did before. No, there was no immediate use demand. But because it was the demand was coming from different sources, so your corporation stopped buying toilet paper, the restaurants stopped buying toilet paper, and everybody at home said, I'm going to buy a whole bunch of toilet paper. Well, it wasn't packaged in the right packaging things. Uh, so from an economics viewpoint, this is one of my favorite subjects, by the way. It's really hard not to make poop jokes in the middle of this. I, I don't know if it's possible not to make poop jokes in the middle of this. But it's a really good example of how a supply chain can be really fouled up very quickly in a sudden change in demand. It's happened across the spectrum of things. Toilet paper is the most recognizable, but computer chips are the things people talk about the most. But it's in a lot of things. The Colonial Pipeline hack caused there to be a a massive amount of gasoline in Texas at the same time that there was a, a smaller, much smaller amount than usual in the Northeast. So what does that do to prices? Well, it's localized craziness. Some places it goes up, some places it goes down. And the average of it, because there are fewer goods, they have to change the way they're being produced and where they're being produced and and where they're being sold. And because there is a lot more money floating around from all of the stimulus and from people not going on vacations and not going to restaurants and not buying cars because they weren't driving for a year, suddenly all that pent-up demand, which was not a demand because they didn't really need it, oh, we still need it. We still need a new car or we still need a higher quality car. We haven't driven our car for a year and there's something major wrong with it. So that's what we're seeing. And we forgot to give out our email addresses. We did. If you would like so, to join the conversation with us, you can join us via email. Uh, Jake at tpwc.com. That's Tango, Papa, Whiskey, Charlie, or the personal wealth coach. Or Jeff at tpwc.com. Or both. Or both. Preferably both. So this concept of too much money, too few goods, that tells you without, there's no doubt that we are going to have some inflation. The question is, how long will it last and how severe will it be? The Federal Reserve is saying, don't be too worried about that right now. We're going to have some weird fluctuations, but we're more concerned about there's a lot of people still not working. And as long as they're not working, if stimulus stops, we get the reverse of inflation, which is a lot more dangerous. We get starts with disinflation and then it becomes deflation. Got a question. Okay. I didn't get it. Oh. From Gary. No, it was just to me. I heard this morning that Joel Greenberg, former tax collector at Florida, is being investigated for using his office computers to create Bitcoin. How does one manufacture money by using a bank of computers? Is that even legal? Does a cryptocurrency contribute anything useful or beneficial to the economy? Could a cryptocurrency replace the dollars of the world's reserve currencies? Currency. Okay. Want to answer that? Sure. I'm going to approach this. First off, the crime. Guy getting in trouble 
for using a company computer, or in this case, a government computer, to create something for his own benefit. It's kind of like all of the scandals about some cabinet post at the, at, under the White House using their position to get government employees to pick up their dry cleaning or to take their car to the cleaner. Or uh, in this case, it's more like um, running their corporate profit center on a government computer. So how is it that currency can be manufactured? Is that legal? Well, as long as you're manufacturing a non-governmental currency, it's legal. Well, let me, let, me, let me go to something far simpler than cryptocurrency and work my way up. <clears throat> One of the earliest forms of currency that we see as currency was not metal or paper. It was shells, cowrie shells. And we've spoken about this over the last several weeks. And cowrie shells, we've, we've got evidence of cowrie shells that were taken from Africa in North America that came across with the land bridge. So this, there's not a lot of evidence of that, but it's there, which means that the, the trade, it did probably was not very fast trade, but the trade took place across continents. And it was, the trade is based on, it's easier to carry around these shells than to carry around, for instance, chickens, I'm going to buy that deer from you with these three chickens, or that's not a very nice trade, but could be. All right. Instead, you've got a a handful of cowrie shells. Usually it's made into some form of jewelry, and it's still currency in parts of the world. And you can go dig it up and make the jewelry yourself, and you can go and use it to buy stuff. Mali is one of the places that it's still near official in its currency level. Okay. So, come forward, then we moved on from cowrie shells to something that was rarer, which is uh, precious metals. Harder to get, takes more time to pull it out of the ground, and then the the government of whatever nation or city-state or whatever would plant the seal of it, either the, somebody's face or whatever. A head or a tail is on these coins. And the, the word defacing the currency comes from scraping bits of metal off of the face so that you could eventually melt down more, more metal into coins. So you defaced it by scraping the face off the coin for that metal. So that we still use that. Don't deface the currency. Like We're not scraping any faces off a dollar. What? But we still use that word. Okay. Come forward a bit more. Now governments are saying, hey, you can't make currency yourself. We're controlling the quantity. We're controlling the supply of the money. We're going to say we're not going to allow more than a certain amount of our money in circulation. Um, Sir Isaac Newton had a, a lot to do with this at the Bank of England when he was uh, exchequer of the mint. Um, he helped come up with the rules that still define what central banks do. And, and basically, the central bank and the government of a, comp- of a country are trying to control how much currency is, is in circulation so you don't get too much, that's inflation, we were just talking about that, or too little, which is deflation, which is a lot more dangerous. That's something 
it, it, we would have to spend quite a bit of time on that, but that's a very dangerous thing. It means that your mortgage gets more expensive every year, even if the interest rates don't change because the dollars that you're using into it are worth more, which means you're getting paid less of them, but you still have a 30-year contract to pay this thing back. All right, cryptocurrency is this concept where you encrypt your ledger books. So if you've got a bank statement and you and it's absolutely official and you could show this as a as a uh, a badge to people and say look I have this much money in the bank therefore you can cash my check. Let's let's say that that was a thing that could actually happen. That's kind of what cryptocurrencies are in that the ledger, the statement is being encrypted and you can show it to people and they know you have the money. That means you don't have to have them hold your check for two weeks to make sure it cashes. It doesn't bounce. So this is the blockchain and the encryption portion of it is the cryptocurrency. The fact that that you can verify immediately that somebody has the currency that they claim to have, that means it, it is immediately yours. Okay. That's not backed by any government. It is simply a bunch of people that got together and said, we all agree that this thing has value because I want to pay for it. I will buy it from you and you will buy it from me. That's what all currencies are. Cowrie shells, governmental currency, or cryptocurrency is that we all agree it's worth some money. What we agree it's worth changes, which is why central banks exist and they help their, whatever country they're with or in the European Union's case, the whole block of countries, they're saying, all right, we're backing this to keep some of the fluctuations in pricing out of it. When you look at the, the history of cryptocurrencies, the, the huge amounts of ups and downs in what they can buy makes it hard to use it as money. So it's really being used as a commodity. People are trading it more for itself than for its ability to buy or sell things. Okay, I know that's that's all kind of background. So it's totally legitimate to come up with this currency on your own, just like cowrie shells. You could go and find them and make them into jewelry, and now you have money. It's not backed by some government saying, yes, we guarantee this is worth something or we'll trade it for something. Okay, so the big issue there, he's using a government computer to enrich himself. That's a big no-no. It's legal to create a currency as long as you're not saying it's a government currency. And does it have value? It could. And it looks like you have something you want to add to this. So, so I'll stop my it's monologue important. for a second. It's important to throw in here. It is like calorie shells, only if there were only so many calorie shells created in the world. And Bitcoin, for example, uh, the encryption of the Bitcoin is a number that has to be found. And it's a difficult job. It's going to be more and more difficult to find. It takes huge banks of computer and huge computers, which is why uh, Elon Musk has stopped taking Bitcoin for cars because he realizes the environmental damage is being done by Bitcoin mining. By the way, I looked up the story on this guy. He didn't actually try to manufacture Bitcoin. He was just trading Bitcoins. Yeah, you're still but, not supposed to do that on a government computer. Right. And he did a lot of other things wrong too, like sex trafficking and yeah. underage sex and things like that but at any rate the point is that there's only so many if you if it was cowrie shells instead of bitcoins there's only so many cowrie shells in the world and you got to hunt for them you're shaking your head no yeah because that's the theory in the white paper on the cryptocurrency on bitcoin for instance that there's a limited number you can never get above this number of bitcoins 
The problem is that you've got nine decimal points in the Bitcoin. So once you reach that max, they still get, it's nearly an infinite supply of Bitcoin. And on top of that, there are other cryptocurrencies. There's no limit on the number of cryptocurrencies. It's just which ones are popular. So yeah, go ahead. Well, the, the point is that when Bitcoin first came out, it was relatively a person with five or six computers in their house running off regular household current could actually manufacture Bitcoin. Right. And they're valuable. Now it takes huge banks of computers working for many, many hours to find a single Bitcoin. Of course, the price of Bitcoin has gone up too. But the point, the issue is it's getting really, really hard to find them. There, there may not be a finite number, but they're really hard to find at this point. Yeah, and well, the, it's capping out, algorithm. which is why the price is going up, which means that each, if you go out to the ninth decimal point, that's coming up to the value of an original Bitcoin at this point. That one way, way out to the ninth decimal point. But finding a single Bitcoin is really hard to do right now and takes a tremendous amount of computing power. That's why the new, the new various currencies are starting up. By the way, an interesting point, most of the currencies that have started up recently have no currency value whatsoever. Nobody's even pretending to use them as currency. They're just making up a new cryptocurrency and people start buying it. And that's the point Do I was saying. There's Dogecoin always example. Dogecoin, yeah. The, you, there's a constant ability to make a new type of cryptocurrency. So does it have, the, the last part of that question I think was a good one, does it have a place in the economy? Yes, it does. The place in the economy it has, right now, it's mostly filling black market space. But there's some other good reasons to have a currency that you can trade across uh, government lines, for instance. Um, if, if you're going to Europe for a vacation, and when you get to Europe, you want to convert your dollars into euros. Well, there's some pretty exorbitant fees if you get it done at the airport. Those are some pretty expensive places to have your money changed over. You can go to the corner store and get it changed there. But again, you've got a massive fee on there. But if you buy a Bitcoin and then convert it to euros, the fees are much, much lower. So there's some, there's some efficiency that's going in the conversion of one currency to another. The problem with it is, and this is, this is something that isn't going to be a problem forever, is that it's supposed to be anonymous, that who owns it is an unknown. But it's kind of like if you're carrying your phone around and Google knows that there's a phone that's going around a certain area, and it knows that you made a purchase at one store and then at another store, it can figure out which phone is you, even if it's totally anonymous, even if nobody knows whose phone is what, all it needs is a couple of transactions and it knows, oh, nope, that's, that's Jake McClure right there that's wandering around. The metadata isn't just the data that's being held in the Bitcoin. It's also in the blockchain, which, as I said earlier, it's open. Everybody can see the transactions. Now, they can't tell who the person is that owns that account and the other account. They just know those two ex accounts. But if you've got a couple of reference points it's not anonymous anymore suddenly people know this is who's going on and there's a great example of that several of the the coin exchange places the the places that allow the trading of cryptocurrencies have tracked um profitability of 
dark side. Those are the folks that put the the ransomware on the colonial pipeline over the last week, week or two. Uh, and they got paid in cryptocurrency. Well, that cryptocurrency left one account and went to another account and then to another account and then they got moved around to other accounts after that. And we know which accounts they went to. We don't on the surface know who owned them, but all it takes is a couple of transactions and we can find that out. So these these exchanges are able to say, yep, this is dark side. So it's not anonymous anymore. And it's going to be less and less anonymous. So this is an important thing. If you are into cryptocurrencies and you think it's anonymous that you enough that you don't need to pay taxes on your gains, expect to be surprised in a very negative way because there's enough algorithmic approaches now that people are being able to determine who owns what cryptocurrency and what the gains were on them. So just go ahead and proactively pay your tax on it now because it's going to be worse if you don't. The federal court has required the IRS to serve subpoenas on crypto exchanges to find out who is trading those currencies. As a matter of fact, I suspect we'll see laws uh, before very long They don't coming up that'll say that cryptocurrency exchanges will have to collect social security numbers and all the other yeah, stuff that absolutely. banks have to collect. Just the same way that we're, we're making foreign banks, if they have any U.S. citizens as customers, we're making them provide that to the IRS as well because we want everybody to pay taxes because I don't want to have already, to pay more taxes because somebody didn't pay theirs. There's already foreign exchanges that won't do business with American citizens. And of course, people are sneaking around and pretending not to be American citizens and doing business with the foreign exchanges. But when they do so, they violate federal law. And sooner in there's, there's one in Mexico, for example, that the IRS is going after and the State Department is going after it fine because there's, they're claiming that there are no Americans trading on there. But in fact, they're seeing traffic in the United States to them, which indicates that Americans are trading on there. And eventually that'll come out. Yeah. I would not want to be the people who are trading illegally cross-border money laundering. Right. So that's money laundering and that's a felony. Right. So is there a use to, for cryptocurrencies? Yes. It does make transactions across national boundaries faster and cheaper. But the real cryptocurrency advantage is when the governments have their own. When they have some form of a blockchain where they can organize how money is being transferred. And that's happening this year. The Federal Reserve is doing a same-day wiring. They're talking about the, the crypto dollar, which is just wrapping it into a blockchain system. It's not like a peer-to-peer thing where you manufacture it. It's still manufactured by the banks, but it's being a, a much faster way of, of transmitting money. It'll still be done at the bank level. So Will cryptocurrencies be what we use in the future? Yes. Will we call them cryptocurrencies long-term? Probably not. We're just going to call them dollars or yuan or or yen or whatever else. It's just going to be money. I'm old enough to remember when credit cards first came out. Bank America card was the first one to come out. And the general purpose credit card that came out with magnetic strip on it was something really weird. That was the beginning of digital currency. We already have digital currency. As a matter of fact, the majority of transactions in the United States, vast majority, have nothing to do with cash or checks. They're done digitally, and the little digital encoding on the back of your card. If you have a, if you, for example, have a card with a twenty-five thousand dollar limit on it, you're carrying around twenty-five thousand dollars in your pocket, effectively, and that is linked into a system. You can't raise or lower the value of the dollars that are in there. 
But that is that was a major departure from the way we used to do business, and it caused a lot of confusion, and a lot of people were upset about it at the time, thinking the government was going to take over, the banks were going to take over. In fact, the banks right now know more about you than you want them to know, probably. If you use your credit card, they know everything you do. They know where you are. They know what you spend where. And somehow we've still maintained our privacy to a greater degree than we had it even back then. The point is, things are going to change again, and we will eventually have a crypto dollar. I think the yeah, Chinese I mean, it should are be this year. Crypto. It's this year. It's well, already in, in the works. The crypto yuan is being worked on by China. The crypto dollar is being worked on by the United States, and we'll eventually have them. But they simply will be a more secure, faster way to transfer dollars around. And just like the digital dollar, you're actually safer using a credit card online, by the way, than you are using cash in the store. This this is this is something that's kind of hard to get across to people. The dollars that we use today are already sort of a cryptocurrency. Yeah, they're digital and they're encrypted. So when you log into your bank on your website, there's a little thing that appears on the in the address bar, the HTTPS. That S means it's encrypted. If it has a little lock bar, a lock next to it, it's encrypted. So your money's already in an encrypted vault. It's just encrypting the actual currency. And we've got to play some commercials. Speaking of currency. Yeah. So the station needs to get paid. Uh, and if you would like to join the conversation, our email addresses in here are jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. And we'll be back on the other side of these very important announcements from our sponsors. And we're back with more of the Personal Wealth Coach with Jake and Jeff McClure. McClure. Yeah. I'm looking at a, at a white paper right now from uh, Advisors Asset Management, and we're looking at and it's showing sources from Bloomberg and from the U.S. Treasury and the Federal Reserve looking at money supply out there, looking at what's happened. Now, over the past, I don't know, since about 2009, all the way up till 2019, uh, people as a percentage of what they owned had a between four and a half and five percent in cash as a percentage of everything they owned, their market uh, holdings, their house, their car, and their bank accounts. It was running between four and a half and five percent. And now we're up right around 6.9%. So people are holding a lot more of their assets in cash. Well, that's, that's a huge jump up. I know 6.9% doesn't sound like a massive amount. The highest we've ever been since this has been measured is right after World War II. In 1950, we were almost to 6%. And when I started my career in the early 90s, there was this big fear out there that Americans weren't saving enough. So when I started my career, the savings rate was below 3%. We're now at just below 7%. And the, the change from about 4.5% to 7% took place in two months. I, and we're looking at a period of history from 1950 to today. That's a 71-year history. There's never been a movement of cash that's that much, that fast. 
So when we're looking at the values of cryptocurrencies, that we're looking at the values of houses or of cars, just know it's because there's a lot more money out there in people's bank accounts, a lot more. When we look at money market accounts, we're way higher than we were at the end of the Great Recession when people were pumping money in because they were afraid that uh, the market was going to continue to be horrible. They pumped money in. The Federal Reserve was, was doing quantitative easing. Uh, we had a, a, a stimulus package under Bush and then another one under Obama. We're way above that right now as far as cash in the system. So what we're seeing is a huge amount of speculation. People are sitting on more money than they're used to sitting on. And I don't know about you, but I have probably heard this more than a dozen times in the last week. I've got this money sitting in my bank and it's not doing anything for me there. Yeah, I've heard that too. And not doing anything for me there means it's not making me money. And I have to immediately stop people and say, yes, it is. It's keeping it safe for you now. That is the thing it is doing for you. That is what savings are. The root of saving is safe. So remember that if you have it in the bank, that's not money that's meant to be making you money. It's meant to be saving money. But I think when people got their stimulus checks in, if you had a couple, they got several thousand dollars over the last year. Right. A lot of people didn't spend them. They put them in the bank. And they're looking for something that is found money. It it is, it's not worthless money, but it's money they didn't have to earn and they feel like they need to spend it on something. And I think that's having a lot of effect too. Down payment on a car, for example. Right. We did have another question come in. What's a cowrie shell from Jim? All right. Cowrie shells, huh? What is a cowrie shell? Um, Do you want to answer that? Cowrie shell is a small shell. It's about the size, uh, the typical ones that were used for money, about the size of your thumb from the joint down to through the thumbnail. Yeah, about a thumbnail size. So maybe a little bit bigger. shiny on one side and open on the other side. And they're found in the Maldives or Maldives Island. Maldives. Maldives Island. Islands. They're found in the Indian Ocean. But they're not really common. Uh, there's some found in other places around the world, but they're not a real common shell. Now, where they're really common, they're not worth very much. But what happened is they began to be used as currency across Africa because we're on the African shorelines. You couldn't find them. So uh, they began I, to use as currency. And as a matter of fact, Native Americans used them as currency because they're relatively rare on the American shores. And, and, and cowrie can be spelled two ways, C-O-W-R-I-E or C-O-W-R-Y. So you can, and, you can look those up and, and see them. They, they have the convenience in that they're very durable. They're convenient sized. You can, as a matter of fact, they're often strung into necklaces to show how wealthy a person is. In, in, in not prehistoric times, actually in the 19th century, they were still being used across Africa. And they're, still, fact, people sl- they're still using still them used in, some in Central Africa. Yeah, um, and that's what I'm saying. Mali, it's nearly an official currency right there. You, you, and there's places in Mali that you cannot use the government currency. You have to use cowrie shells. So it's the shells longest are, are fully in use currency period on the planet. It goes back more than 5,000 years. If you, if you go to the Maldives and wander around the beaches or well, actually the beaches get pretty well cleaned of them. But if you were doing some skin diving in Maori in the Maldives, you probably could find cowrie shells. So you could be mining Maori sh- the shells, but the expense of getting them back to uh, central Africa where you could use them in Mali would probably be excessive. <laughs> Well, and, and the collapse in the value of the cowrie shells took place in the mid-1600s 
when a, a Dutch exploration found a desert uh, where there used to be an ocean that was just crammed miles across and probably a mile deep with nothing but cowrie shells. And the first ships that got, that got back to the Netherlands made a massive amount of money. And the last ships that got there lost everything because the whole ship, you know, all the expense of going there and back, you didn't get paid for with the, with the cowrie shells. So it's a supply and demand issue only until the supply goes really, really big. And that's kind of a similar thing that we're seeing here. That's I mean, inflation. I expect at some point you'll see a bit, uh, not a Bitcoin, but a, a crypto coin crash because there's so many crypto coins coming out that have no use whatsoever, no practical use whatsoever. They're just collectibles. Right. And they're there and, and the people are buying them because they go up and eventually they'll go down. Yeah. And, and we've already seen several crashes in, in the cryptocurrency market. Well, I wouldn't expect one as long as we have this much cash sitting on the sidelines. But I would start to expect them when we're getting to the to the end of the period where the Federal Reserve is just dumping money into the economy. And we're about a out of time for this hour. There's not enough time in an hour to cover cryptocurrencies appropriately. There's either too much or not enough. We, If you would like to talk to us off the air, we'll be back next hour. But if you'd like to talk to us off the air, those email addresses still work. At Jeff at tpwc.com or Jake at tpwc.com. You can go to our uh, or you can call us locally at 254-947-1111. And that is a uh, voicemail during the weekend, real live people during the week. You can reach that same line at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. Or you can go to the webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter, listen to our podcast. You can listen to the radio program going back lots of years, see what we were saying before. Until next hour, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.